0: Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Chapter 2, Supplemental Episode 2, an interview with Compaq co-founder and CEO Rod Canyon. If you've watched Mad Men recently, then you're familiar with the fact that AMC is heavily advertising a new scripted series called Halt and Catch Fire. Set in the early 1980s, it tells a fictionalized account of a rogue group of programmers and entrepreneurs who launch a new computer company by reverse engineering and cloning an IBM PC. When I heard about this show, I was excited because last year I read Rod Canyon's book, Open, how Compaq ended IBM's PC domination and helped invent modern computing. So I was excited. I thought, now even television is getting on board with the technology history thing. Well, I watched the first episode, which is streaming online, and let's just say it's very loosely inspired by actual events. But that doesn't change the fact that there really is an interesting true-to-life story about the birth of the clone PC industry that they're drawing on here. And the whole Silicon Prairie scene in the 1980s that spawned Tandy, Compaq, and Dell, among others, is really fascinating to me. And so, in honor of the show premiering this weekend, I thought I'd bring you that story. Rod's book is actually one of the best first-hand accounts of the high-wire act that is a technology startup that I've ever read. And I know that this story is a bit outside of our purview in terms of internet history, but the story of Compaq's founding, how it took on Big Blue and actually wrestled control of the PC paradigm away from IBM, is so compelling that I think it'll be instructive in relation to the other startup stories we've been examining. And if you listen to Chapter 2, Episode 1, you'll know that we did talk a lot about the state of the PC industry before the birth of the Internet era, so this should fit in quite nicely. And so, in honor of the new show, Halt and Catch Fire, an interview with Rod Canyon of Compact Computers. Rod Canyon, thank you for coming on the Internet History Podcast.
1: Brian, I'm uh, very happy to be here.
0: Rod, you're a uh, native Texan, that's correct?
1: Uh, Yes, I am. I am a native Texan, actually a native Houstonian.
0: And you went to the University of Houston?
1: I did. I went there for uh, six years, got my bachelor's and master's in electrical engineering.
0: Did you um, head right to Texas Instruments after college?
1: I went to TI right after uh, I got my master's degree. I sure did.
0: So in the early 80s, you and uh, Jim Harris and Bill Murto are all um, executives at Texas Instruments, and you guys get a, a wild hair to start your own company. Can you tell us about that?
1: Well, first, using the term executive is a stretch. We were managers. Uh, We weren't high enough in the organization to even be called an executive. But that was a good thing, it turned out, because we were close to the good and the bad that goes on inside a big company. But there were a number of factors that led us to decide to start a company. Part of it was, to be sure, the excitement around the whole uh, microprocessor uh, industry that was beginning to grow up around companies like Apple and even Atari and, and the game companies because you could see where it was headed. It was going to be a really big deal, a, a game changer. And then, uh, like I think happens a lot of times, uh, we were inside a big company and we're be- beginning to get a little frustrated at um, the leadership that was uh, not going in the direction that we believed strongly we needed to go. And that it wasn't going to allow us to go that direction. So we talked about it and talked about it. And finally, one day, we just started.
0: And you just started without necessarily knowing what the product would be, or you you knew it would be in computers, but you didn't didn't start out with the idea of doing a portable computer.
1: No, we didn't. And in fact, that was one of the farthest things from my mind, because uh, one thing TI did a very good job of was teaching their employees about intellectual property uh, intellectual property that belonged to TI and so we knew that if we came even came up with uh, uh, going to be uh, somehow in competition with TI that uh, that would be a problem for us so very hard to try to come up with a idea that was not going to be competitive something that after you know, they found out what we were doing. Uh, they would be okay with it.
0: So you guys are obviously very careful about. Uh, uh, some of you make sure to to quit before the company starts, but you're you're very sure to keep that Chinese wall between what you're doing and and what you had been doing at TI.
1: Yes, we were very careful about that. We uh, we worked on things outside of our hours at TI. We worked on things that we didn't think. Uh, TI yeah, would be as competitive. Uh, we just we we had learned from uh, from our experience there, and and we're you know not wanting to get into any trouble uh, as we started. So yeah, we did a very thorough job of that.
0: So can you recollect how the idea to do your own computer to do a fully one hundred percent compatible uh, PC uh, came about?
1: Uh, very well. It was one of those things that <clears throat> I literally uh, felt a chill down my spine. The uh, the idea came together because it was really a combination of things that made it work. The idea for a portable computer. There were a number of those already in the market. Uh, you know, we uh, the only reason we were actually even looking uh, into that area was because once we quit. Uh, the first idea we had had uh the venture capitalists decided not to fund it, which uh they had told us they might not fund it and so uh, we decided we would start looking more broadly and the way we did that was we sort of divided the uh, uh the market areas up, and each of us would go off and uh, do research and think about potential product ideas and then we would gather and discuss them uh see if anything. Looked promising that we could begin to focus on. So, uh, I believe it was the morning of January the eighth, nineteen eighty-two, that I was working at home uh, alone uh, in my breakfast room, and uh, I was going over the idea for a portable computer. How could we make one that was uh, differentiated enough to make it worthwhile? And you know, there were some some obvious things. Uh, there were improvements in styling. For one, it was it was so obvious when you looked at the Osborne portable, which was very successful at the time. It, it just it was not suitable for a business environment. So styling was one. Uh, we decided that ruggedness. Uh, it didn't appear to us that any of the uh worlds had really been designed to be moved around. So uh, designing it for ruggedness, and, and we we understood how to do those kinds of things to a product. At the end of the day, though, there was this one big hang up. As much as I loved microprocessors and computers and would love to have, have uh, built one, the idea that uh, not being able to get software developed for it was a killer. Was what happened in the morning for the first time ever killer apps that were required for success had hit the market. Uh, so uh, the first one was VisiCalc, the first spreadsheet. Truly a a breakthrough, and uh, I think in in many ways the the real enabler of the whole PC market, at least it got it going. But the VisiCalc uh, spreadsheet program had to be adapted to each computer. Every computer ran different software, and there were literally somewhere close to 300 different uh, computer companies making uh, new computers at the time. There would never be VisiCalc for our portable And then uh, one day that that morning, the idea hit me that what if we could make our computer run software that already was out there, that is, uh, run the software for the product that was getting the most software and always getting the first software when a new one came out, and that was the IBM PC, because IBM had done something they had never done before, which was bring a computer to market that wasn't just totally protected from a copying standpoint. We didn't want to copy their computer. We wanted to have access to the software that was written for their computer by other people, and so uh, we did some work on it very quickly. Put together a four-page business plan and presented it to uh, to some venture capitalists, the same ones that we had originally talked to, Seven Rosen.
0: Well, and let now, me the
1: fly in the ointment. What?
0: Let me let me interrupt yeah. you there. It's important uh, for sure. people that don't remember. So the IBM PC. Uh, IBM was was late to the game, so they they rush out their IBM PC and they use off the shelf materials, but they're also wildly successful. So when you're talking about you you want to to create a, a computer that that all the software will run on, it's because the IBM had become so popular that most developers are developing their their software and their apps for the IBM PC.
1: I I would say every software company that existed at the time was because ibm was just they were the leader by far they had come into the market with a a little bit of an advanced product but not anything really that far ahead of anybody else but it, it, with the brand and the time it, it was just right and every software company jumped on the ibm pc and, and adapted their product to run on it so that was, it was the obvious one from that standpoint but the real you know the the totally unexpected twist was we couldn't have done it if IBM hadn't done exactly what they did because nobody else, uh, Apple certainly wouldn't have stood for us to make a product that ran their software. They had enough protection on it to uh, to prevent that, as did all the others. IBM, the best one to pick, also happened to be the only one that wasn't protected, and it was because of this sort of strange thing. They they didn't believe much in the market. They just rushed uh, a one-year project to get to market. And therefore, they had used off-the-shelf parts and really had very little protection. They did have the BIOS copyrighted, so you had to be very careful uh, copying that. And they had written, uh, they modified greatly uh, Microsoft's uh, MS-DOS, the operating system, to uh, to run on their, their PC. And it was copyrighted, so you couldn't copy it But both of those could be reverse-engineered, and that's the thing that our experience knew. We knew there was a way to do it. We believed we could do it legally. We didn't just assume things. We hired uh, the best uh, intellectual property attorney we could find and used their strict guidance to help us uh, do the reverse-engineering very carefully.
0: So uh, just to back up for a second, this becomes your idea to do... um to create a PC that will be 100% compatible with the existing IBM standard so that it'll run all the software. And this is the idea now that you go back to the venture capitalists like John Doerr and and you you say, hey, this is what we want to do. And that's what finally gets the company funded, correct?
1: That's exactly right. We actually went to 7Rosen. LJ7 was based in Dallas. Uh, they liked the idea. They sent us out to talk to uh, Perkins, and at the time, John Doerr was a a young venture capitalist, and uh, he and a couple of his partners uh, put us through the ringer that day. I remember that very vividly as well. They did a good job of asking good questions, and uh, at the end of the day, they agreed to fund us. So we very quickly, literally, uh, uh, just about a month from the day the idea was conceived, we had... uh, at least a handshake on funding and we're getting ready to start the company.
0: So the key is that you have to reverse engineer the the bias because that's as you said that's the one part that is protected um and and what is the process for that? You you have to make sure that you do it so that you don't infringe on anything. I think that it wasn't the bias um wasn't it already it was in the manual, correct?
1: They had, uh, in order to allow software developers uh, to develop applications that used subroutines that were in ROM, in the BIOS, they had published the exact code of the BIOS in ROM. But it was also copyrighted. There were actually a copies that went in and just simply copied out of the manual, and uh, uh, they ended up getting sued and, and shut down. But we knew, fortunately, not to do that in what our lawyers told us was that not only can you not use it, anybody that's even looked at it, glanced at it, uh, could taint the whole project. So we organized. even though we had very few people, we had two software people. One guy read the um, uh, the code and actually generated a functional specification. So it's like reading glyphics and figuring out what it does and then writing the specification for what it Uh, does, then once he's got that specification completed, sort of hands it through a doorway uh, or a window to another person who's never seen IBM's code, and he takes that spec and starts from scratch and writes our own code to be able to do the exact same function.
0: And to some extent, you have to do that with uh, DOS as well, correct?
1: Well, DOS was different, even though uh, it was a, a, a similar kind of situation. The uh, interesting thing is Microsoft actually supplied a, a version of MS DOS, and they were selling it uh, to many, many companies at the time to adapt for these companies to adapt to their computer. Now, the thing, it, it seems strange today with everything running all the same software, but back in those days, There was no thought given to making the exact same version of uh, MS DOS run on every machine, Uh, so they were all really totally incompatible. Even though they all ran MS DOS, that was sort of the it was it was referred to as the standard, but it was a standard of name only almost. So our idea was well, actually incorrectly when we came up with the business plan, we believed we could buy a version of. MS DOS from Microsoft that was compatible with IBM. Uh, we weren't able to verify that before we went and presented our plan and got funding. But that was what we believed and certainly hoped for. It was not until after we had gotten our initial funding, started the company, and went to to Microsoft, found out that uh, actually no, they can't because they don't even have access to it. IBM had gone off and and modified it, even though some Microsoft uh, people had worked with IBM that was totally owned by IBM and they did not have access to it. So what we got from Microsoft was everybody else got a completely incompatible version that had inside somewhere it was similar, but from the outside it was totally different. So that led to another type of reverse engineering where even uh, harder than the first one, we had to simply try out each software package, each and every third-party software package, we had to run on our computer using MS-DOS and find out what didn't work and then go into MS-DOS and change it to make it work. And there were literally hundreds of places where we had to go in and make changes to MS-DOS. But in the end, you know, after almost a year of just – Beating away at, finally hiring a lot more people than we started out with, and that we thought we would need. Uh, we were able to uh, to make enough changes to make our computer running our own reverse-engineered BIOS and our own uh, very carefully uh, modified version of MS-DOS. We were able to run all of the IBM PC software.
0: And that's, that computer is the Compact Portable, which comes out in, in November of, of 82, I believe. That's, that's really an amazing achievement for a, a small team, a small startup.
1: Yes, it was. Uh, you know, part of that was we just had some incredible people. Um, you know, when we started the company... Three of us from T I we all knew each other very well because we had worked together and, and you know sort of close quarters on starting up businesses inside T I. And the engineers we hired were engineers we had worked with for five or ten years. We knew exactly what they were capable of. They were, you know, some of the best we've ever seen. so uh when when the going got tough, we had a very, very good core of people and began to hire top notch people to go with them and so it was a matter of probably people uh, a clean understanding of what well, we couldn't do legally and then just uh, a, a bullheaded uh, commitment to making all the software run and very interestingly we were shocked when we found out none of our competitors had done done it to the same degree you know we we could speculate on why they had stopped short of complete compatibility it was hard and it took a long time and it was a natural rush to get to market, people wanted to be first. Uh, there was only one thing for us, we, we didn't have a product if we couldn't run the IBM PC software. And if you didn't run all of it, how would anybody be confident enough to buy your computer if they didn't know they were going to always be able to run new software? And So we, we took it very, very seriously, I guess, uh, probably more seriously than any of our competitors.
0: And and you're wildly successful because of that, uh, Compaq, I don't know uh, people might forget this, but Compaq ended up being um, the fastest company to hit hundred million dollars in sales. Um, your, your first year, I believe, which was your se- your first year of sales, your second year of operations, you sell fifty three thousand PCs, um, have sales of one hundred and eleven million, and um, you eventually become the the quickest firm ever to make the Fortune five hundred, the the quickest firm ever to hit the billion dollar mark. And this is all based on the fact that, in a lot of ways, y- your computer, starting with the portable and then going on with like the desk pro, they they tend to run even better than the IBM machines themselves run. Is that right?
1: Well, yes, uh, in, in a couple of ways. Uh, first, they they have more features. In other words, they they have a better display. It'll do both high resolution characters as well as uh, graphics. And then when we come out uh, with our first desktop, we have higher performance. We have uh, tape backup. There are a lot of things IBM just didn't bother with that we were able to fill in and really make a a better product. But to get all the way to to those numbers, you know, it it sounds easy. We just made a compatible computer, and, and everything worked well. There were a whole lot of other... Uh, pieces of the puzzle that had to fall into place. And I guess that was part of what made the time so amazing is at each turn in the road, we were able to make a decision that ended up uh, allowing us to keep going on that high growth path and actually keep our competitors away from us. For example, the the distribution channel thing. Anybody starting a company needs to really be careful about distribution, having the greatest product ever, and no way to get it to customers is not going to work. So when we went after the computer dealers, we found that they we had a product that filled a need that uh, they were already seeing, and we, we didn't know that at of time. But we discovered it. We sort of uh, discovered it before anybody else, and we got enough uh, uh, inputs from, from the computer stores, from the dealers, that told us very clearly there was a lot of people already asking for this product. That's why we went back and actually had to make serious uh, changes to our plans. We were going to. If we hadn't discovered that pent-up demand and and planned for it and really bet the company on it, we couldn't possibly have responded to the to the demand that developed as we went through the year. We would have, you know, in a good year, if, if everything had gone well, we might have been able to, to get uh, 30 or 40 million dollars in sales. So what, what we had to do in order to achieve that 111 million was in the beginning of the year, in the first quarter, go back. Take the pent up demand we had discovered, figure out what the real potential was, and then go raising capital, We went back to the uh, market for the third time and raised $20 million in March of 1983, just as we were really getting going in order to fund both that we believed were there for us that year.
0: And, yeah part of the success also is that you're you're being you, you have a focus on the user you're, uh, a key is that you're always make you're, you're bending over backwards to make things backwards compatible every time you come out with a new machine it still works with the old software it still works with the old peripherals and even ibm itself didn't seem to take uh, that much care to make sure that that happened
1: Yeah, that was another one of those things that really surprised us. Um, as you said, we were customer-focused, and how did we get there? It's, it's a common-sense way to think. If you're going to sell products, you might want to make the needs of the customer. So we were always thinking about what are the needs? How can we do this or that to make it serve their needs better? And one of the obvious things to us was when we brought out the next-generation product was to make it run all the old software. After all, running all the software that's already out there was such an obvious advantage of our first product. Making the next product continue to run all that software uh, seemed like the same kind of thing. And here's the twist. As a result of having had to do all that hard work and make our first one run all the software, it was relatively easy to make each next generation run all of the existing software. That was something we had gained without realizing it during that first effort. IBM never had to do that. They just came out with the next generation. In fact, looking back, I realized that the only reason they were as compatible as they were when they went from one to the next was because the the microprocessor from Intel was compatible. The rest of the computer, which was also important, had a lot of incompatibilities. And so at each step, each time IBM came out with a new PC, there was more and more software that didn't run. And there, they they didn't ever seem to pick up on that, and customers did pick up on the fact that we did, and you know, strangely led to uh, one of our dealers that sold both IBM and Compaq at one point saying, "Yeah, Compaq is more compatible with IBM than IBM is," which sounded like gibberish if you didn't understand that we're talking about backward compatibility, compatibility with the previous generation products.
0: Well, and talk a little bit about compacts relationship with intel and and microsoft as well because uh, sort of ad hoc you guys uh, end up creating sort of a, an alliance because you're more willing to to work with both companies to to move computing forward for example ibm initially doesn't doesn't bring out a three eighty six machine but you guys uh providentially and, and bravely are willing to, to take the leap with Intel and, and launch a, a 386 machine.
1: Yes, but we got to that point through uh, building sort of uh, certainly a strong relationship, but, but mutual respect between us and Intel and also with Microsoft. The reason we did that is going back to this key technology we developed in the beginning, how to make it, our machine compatible. Uh, neither, neither microsoft nor intel really had had done this they didn't have to do the same thing so they didn't have the technology at their fingertips like we did obviously they understood the importance of making each new thing each new version of dos you know if you had to change your software every time that was a problem or each new version of uh intel processor the 286 came along and IBM comes out with the AT. It doesn't run a lot of the software. It was at that point when we were working with uh, both Microsoft and Intel, they began to understand that we really did have this technology. We knew how to make those things compatible. So as the 386 is being developed, the 286 had quite a few flaws in it. So everybody, you know, you can, you can find Gates and a lot of other people saying at the time, you know, the 286... Uh, needs to go fast, we need to get the 386 out. So they're rushing the 386 out, and they're both coming to us to help uh, make sure that both of the DOS for it and, uh, and the chip itself are backward compatible. So we're working with them closely already, but we're also used to IBM being in there and sort of leading the way and pacing things. And it was IBM uh, deciding... To go after the ps2 which we didn't know at the time they were we knew they were not ready to go after the 386 and they decided they were going to delay the 386 it opened the door for us to slip in front of them and uh, they i think were confident that because of the way the world had always worked that nobody would successfully be able to get out in front of them they were the dominant leader everybody waited for them to come out with the next generation uh, especially processor but any major technology Again, they didn't understand that this was, this was something totally different now that we had an industry standard developing. The key thing, the single most important thing about any new machine was that it run all of the old software. So we knew how to make the 386 chip compatible, working with Intel, how to make DOS compatible, working with Microsoft, and then how to make the whole machine actually run every piece of software that was out there for the old, older models. And we believe that in doing so, Instead of thinking of this as a a major new architecture advance, which, of course, it was on the inside, to a customer, it was a a machine that ran all of its current software, but it ran it three times faster than the old one. It was paying for more speed. And at the time, we were in such an infancy that uh, uh, there was an insatiable insatiable demand for more and more performance. So we believe pretty sick move, although there was no way to know for sure. Just the, the question mark that it not being from IBM uh, that was there uh, could have been uh, a bigger factor than it was. It turns out it wasn't a big factor, and I guess that was proven because six months after we introduced the, uh, the 386 PC, it takes off like a rocket, so we can't build enough in those first six months. Then IBM introduces the PS2, their totally new architecture, totally proprietary, OS-2, a new operating system. But it's based on the 286. That's, that's what they had been working on while we were building the 386. Uh, three, our 386 sales don't slow down at all. They just continue growing uh, rapidly. So that, that was a sign that we were right, that the, the market really valued being able to buy new uh, technology and still be able to run all the old software. And that was going to turn out to be a, a big problem for IBM the next couple of years. In fact, eventually a killer problem for them.
0: Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret?
1: That's dot com slash wondery.
0: Right, you you speak about creating the industry standard, and and I feel like sort of history only remembers that it became the Wintel, the Windows and and Intel duopoly. But uh, in your book, it, there's a strong case to be made that that Compaq was a real leader, and maybe a third a third leg of that of that stool in creating what became the industry standard. Because you 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 form eventually a coalition uh, that's called the Gang of Nine to to solidify the architecture and the the industry standard technology. Um, do do you feel like that compact maybe has has not gotten enough credit for for creating what became the industry standard?
1: Well, you know, we didn't worry about credit. We uh, we were getting. Uh, enough of a reward by the success of the company by uh, doing those things that we didn't worry about who did what. Um, but it, part of the reason for doing the book was so that, uh, as a minimum, uh, our employees would know what they had actually taken part in, that they actually had had a much bigger impact on the world than uh, history generally reported. So, in other words, it wasn't a high priority for us to, to get the record straight at that point in time. But, but you're, you're exactly right. The, the the sequence of events that happened along that few year period, we were really the uh, almost the magician in the back room guiding it. We were the, the company that had the technology to ensure backward compatibility, and that was that was the key technology to uh, to begin to stop IBM's advance with their new PS2. I mean, they sold millions of those. Pe- people look back now and say, "Oh, that was a bad idea." Well. It was viewed as a great idea at the time and was about to succeed because not only did all of the press and analysts believe it, not, not only did all of their uh, customers believe it, but all of our competitors, all of the other computer companies, were buying licenses from IBM and beginning to build PS2 compatibles. It it, it really looked like the Pied Piper. You know, you look down the path far enough and you see, well, IBM is so much more in control than they ever were before. They're going to call all the shots. It's going to be an IBM-dominated and controlled uh, ball game, And so we just weren't we, – we couldn't accept that. But our competitors were just sort of following along and saying, yeah, that's, we're going we're to beat Compaq, and we're going to be the best number two out there. And we, we just kept after it until we finally found a way that we thought might possibly have enough uh, value to, to stop IBM from succeeding and taking over the, the industry. But they were well on their way to doing it before that happened.
0: Uh, One thing I want to cycle back to, because you said in the book no one knew about this, and I certainly didn't know about this. Um, In terms of the relationship with Microsoft and and MS-DOS, Microsoft, you guys create a version of DOS that is so good and, and so compatible that Microsoft ends up licensing your version of DOS back to them?
1: Yes, and um, it's one of those strange things that um, it it just, we kept it secret because it it seemed like it would just muddy the water for competitors, for Microsoft. Uh, We did it because, as I had mentioned earlier, there were so many changes we had to make to their version of MS-DOS, the one they sent to each company. They sent the same thing to everybody, okay? So they send us standard MS-DOS. We take it and we make hundreds of changes to it. So they come out with a new version of MS-DOS, and now we take that one and we go have to go through it and make hundreds of changes. We don't reverse engineer the changes like we did in the beginning, but there's still a lot of of uh, work to be done to go through and make sure we get them all right. And where they've made changes, we have to figure out how that's different and you know, adjust appropriately. So it was a, uh, a, a maintenance nightmare, and it was going to get a lot worse. And so there was a lot of uh, uh, interest in... Well, let's let's give this version back to Microsoft, and let it become their standard. Now, from Microsoft's standpoint, all of their computer companies that were using MS-DOS wanted a wanted a compatible version, and they didn't like going off and making, you know, uh, whatever changes they were making to it to try to be compatible, and they were not succeeding very well. We were recognized widely as by far the most compatible. So we were giving Microsoft something that their customers were asking for. So we were able to license back to them. Microsoft does whatever they do with it and gets it ready to become their standard version of Microsoft and then begins to sell it to all the other computer companies. It sounded like we were giving away the family jewels because since compatibility was one of the key features we had, the most compatibility, but... The market was moving so fast. That we we made a, a judgment, a trade-off that we will always be ahead of anybody that gets this from Microsoft and uses it because we're out there on the leading edge. So when a new feature comes to market, we figure out what changes are made. Then later we send those back to Microsoft. Later they send it to our competitors, and so we're all out in front. Uh, in fact, if you follow our our strategy through that whole 10-year period. Or probably for the next 10 or 12 years. Uh, just being out in front for a few months was all we needed to, to be able to stay in the lead. That, that was kind of a, a different approach. Everybody thinks of intellectual property as building a, 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 an immovable wall that your competitors can't come in. And that just wasn't the way uh, it worked in an industry-standard environment. But if you could get even a, a, a few months of lead on your competitors then you could actually build a, uh, a differentiation that, that had a lot of value. And that's what we did. That's, we, that became our strategy, and we became very good at, at executing it.
0: In terms of IBM, when you read not only your history of it but other histories, it almost seems like their heart was never really in it. it do you think that they just never really got the, the microcomputer industry or the, the, the PC industry in general?
1: Well, I think that's an accurate statement, and in fact it, it can be applied much broader than that. The um, uh, also not remembered nowadays is that right at that moment in history, in the uh, in the late 80s, uh, the Japanese were expected to take over every part of the electronics industry. They had already taken over radios, portable radios, TVs, anything electronic, uh, they just applied their... Uh, their ability to manufacture at a low cost and and eventually good quality, and would come take over the market, and it was assumed that they were going to take over the uh, the PC market, but what happened is, it developed along different lines than than the computer market of the past or any electronics industry of the past. When this industry standard began to develop, it threw a twist into it that nobody really got for a long time, and. Fortunately for Compaq, we got it because we were at the heart of it being created. It was clearly in our best business interest to be able to have access to all this software and then to be able to deliver backward compatibility with each new product. It made it easier for uh, customers to upgrade. And so we were driving it rather than trying to figure out what was going on around us. And IBM never got that part of it. They they didn't. Uh, The Japanese didn't. That's why, uh, you know, all of the many companies that were Trying at the time to get in, Epson and uh, oh gosh, I guess Fujitsu had come out with any, and then there were uh, Taiwanese companies, uh, uh, a number of different ones. Some of them are still around, but they they were slow to pick up on this uh, this unique thing about the industry standard. IBM could have clearly, I think, and certainly in my mind, still be the uh, the personal computer leader if they had understood what was going on with this industry standard but they just viewed it as it's just another computer market and you know it was it was going to end up working out the same way and uh, and they missed uh, how, how important the
0: change was so uh coming up in on june 1st there's the this new amc show called halt and catch fire and it seems to be really loosely based on on this sort of story it, it takes place in texas they decide that they want to uh, clone in an IBM computer. They have to reverse engineer the BIOS. the The IBM lawyers come in and threaten them and things like that. Um, have you Have you seen the the first episode that's that's been previewed online?
1: I have not looked at the whole episode. I've seen the uh, I guess the trailer for it. Uh, and, and I am going to watch it because it looks uh, looks pretty exciting. <laughs> it <laughs> well, it actually be as exciting as the real thing.
0: Well, I can tell you the the very first scene is a uh, is a uh, uh, first segment, I suppose, is has a a, a gratuitous and and uh, kind of gritty sex scene when they're trying to recruit a, a new programmer. So I don't know, <laughs> I doubt that that's how recruiting went down, <laughs> but I guess that's that's the artistic license. Um, I, I, that does make me think though, you know, they, they're accurate in terms of setting it in Texas and, and in a lot of people don't remember this also, but, you know, in the eighties, there's sort of a, a, a Silicon Prairie that's there. I mean, there's Texas Instruments and Compaq and Radio Shack and, and Dell is in Texas. Was there something, what was going on in Texas that, that for, for a long time there that, that, that's a hub of, of technology innovation.
1: You know, a lot of people have asked that question, and um, it's hard to put your finger on it. I'll take it a step further even and say that it dawned on me one day uh, back in the late 80s that by that time uh, of the five companies that had at one time uh, been in the top two or three uh, PC companies, of the top five, three had been from Texas. Apple was from the West Coast, IBM from the East Coast. But the first one had been Tandy. They were a uh, the leader, if not the leader, for a while before IBM came along. And then Compaq came along and got into the industry standard arena first. And then Dell came along behind us and, you know, using the, the, uh, the foundation that we had built, uh, came up with a, a, an interesting twist, which was the – actually, Dell had two twists. One was the, the direct model – and the other was, uh, being able to, to deliver good customer service online or actually at the time over the phone, uh, that, um, people just didn't think was possible, but they'll solve two, uh, key issues and, and carved out a niche for themselves.
0: And compact, it was really the, one of the biggest tech success stories of the eighties, um, like we said, you know, first to Fortune 500 uh, or fastest to Fortune 500 and fastest to a billion in sales. What do you attribute? I mean, obviously you, you said that your key innovation was, was this, this insight into the industry standard serving the users the best. But what else was the, the, the key insight that, that led to Compaq's success in, in your opinion?
1: You know there there are a number of factors. I look back and uh, one of the things that struck me when I sort of looked at the story that I'd written was that gee we took a lot of risk and and you know you you had to take big risks to make a difference. And I think there was something about Texas, uh, you know, from the uh, the water and the oil uh, field to uh, raising cattle out on the range. There's just a there's a certain risk-taking uh, gene almost that runs uh, through a lot of Texans. It, it certainly looks like it when you look around uh, down here, what's going on now. So I think that helped us. We certainly uh, we took the risks. We didn't take them wildly. We, we carefully uh, analyzed and tried to, to make the best decision possible. In many cases, we saw safe decisions where other people saw only risk, but that was because we were much closer to what was going on and, and we were uh, we were also very open to doing things differently. I guess there was part of part of the personality issues was uh, almost at the industry said X, you know, be very careful. Make sure there's not a better path. And there were three or four times through the 80s that we did just that. And when we got through analyzing it, we realized there was a different path that was better. And we took it. And each one of those uh, helped us along. So
0: well, the the book that we keep referring to um, that Rod has written is called Open: How Compaq Ended IBM's PC Domination and Helped Invent Modern Computing. And you know, aside from, if you want a great story of of a of a, a, a crazy startup that that takes a lot of risk, there's also really really great insights and stories about. Uh, you know seemingly mundane things like managing uh, manufacturing and inventory and and there there's a lot of times when when you're running on a razor's edge in terms of uh you know if should if, if you don't produce enough uh, you you might lose the customers but if you produce too much you're going to go into bankruptcy i i highly recommend this book for a really uh, a well-rounded story of of what what it takes to create a successful startup
1: And I'll add to that. Hopefully, it's a it's a thriller of a sort, even though it's a real business story. It's a it, it, as I look back at it, it reminded me of some sort of Indiana Jones uh, type uh, thriller, where uh, at the end of each chapter you're about to die, you know, and you got to read the next chapter to find out how you survive that one, because there were that many uh, life-threatening challenges that came along throughout the 80s for us.
0: Well, Rod Canyon, thank you for taking the time to. Talk to us about it.
1: Thank you for uh, for allowing me to do so. I'm I'm excited to be able to tell our story, and uh, I think it's uh, you know it it seems to be uh, received well by those who have, have heard it. Thank you very much.